This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, May 23rd, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Innovation and invention aren't quite the same thing. To innovate is to make better, to reform something to better suit human purposes, or to reduce costs so that products can more easily pass a market test. In his new book, How Innovation Works, Matt Ridley gives us many historical examples of how innovation has occurred and offers some lessons for how best to keep innovation going. We spoke this week. Years ago, I read a book, I think it was called Hardball, and it details uh, several cases where corporate America faced a problem. And one that stood out to me was Frito-Lay versus Eagle Snacks. I think those were the two companies involved. And Frito-Lay discovered that people preferred uh, Eagle Snacks to Frito-Lay products. And they said, well, what if we tell them it's it's Frito-Lay? And they said, okay. So they do that test and they find out that people strongly preferred Eagle Snacks to Frito-Lay products. And so so companies are are uh, in, in many cases just constantly put in this uh, situation where they have to battle to come up with, uh, in this case, a gold standard potato chip. Um, but in, in more broadly with respect to innovation, your book – how does it work? Well, um, uh, I talk about innovation as a process that's not the same as invention. So in other words, uh, I'm more interested in how you turn a prototype into something that's affordable and available and reliable than, than the, the sort of very first um, prototype of something. Um, th- that's important too you know, coming up with the first new idea. But it's surprising how often people have neglected that and talked about the inventors but not the innovators. People like Thomas Edison who turned, you know, the basic idea of the light bulb into something that really could be relied upon and would work uh, for a good long time. And he did, he tried 5,000 different types of plant material before he settled on Japanese bamboo for the filament of the light bulb. And that's a big part of, how innovation works. It's a trial and error process. It's an iterative process. It's an incremental. It's a gradual. It's an evolutionary process, much more than we tend to think. It's not a matter of clever people suddenly having bright ideas. Um, and as you say, you know, trying to improve a product within a big company is innovation, and it's a big part of it. Big companies aren't very good at innovation. They tend to get taken by surprise by it. Um, uh, but uh, they, they, but but companies generally do an awful lot of innovation. I mean, one of the innovations I start the book talking about, actually, is sliced bread, going back to Frito-Lay and things like that, because um, the best thing since sliced bread is, uh, is a cliche. Uh, so I thought, well, okay, who did invent sliced bread? and How and why and when and where? Um, and it turns out that it was a guy in Chillicothe, Missouri, in the 1920s. Why then? Why there? It's not immediately obvious, except that when you think about it, it couldn't really be done before um, uh, sort of electrical machinery was around because you're not going to hand slice bread and package it. Uh, And it couldn't really be done before sort of cheap packaging was around because there's no point in slicing bread and then selling it uh, without just wrapped in, you know, paper. It would dry out too much. So there's something about that period that makes it inevitable somebody's going to invent sliced bread but there's a very determined individual i've actually forgotten his name temporarily you know who set out to do it and tried several times and 
failed and moved around and eventually cracked the problem uh, and had a local business take it up and sell it. So take it up and sell it. That's uh, a critical element here. That is, you can invent a product and it will fail a market test if it can't be replicated quickly, uh, cheaply, uh, in in a way that uh, consumers want to use it, whoever those consumers might be. It might be another uh, part of industry that wants to make use of the, of the product that you're developing. So uh, in, in your case studies, uh, where do we see the big examples of things that uh, were important, uh, were useful, but uh, maybe initially didn't pass that market test of being able to be practical for most people. I write in the book about wheeled suitcases at one point because I, I, I was looking for examples of new technologies that came along later than they should have done, that should have been invented decades before they were. And when you think about wheels on suitcases, you, you think, well, why didn't we have them in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s? Why did we have to wait uh, till they came along more recently? Um, and uh, so I tracked it down. And sure enough, there's a guy who develops uh, wheeled suitcases uh, in, in the 1970s, and he goes around all the big suitcase manufacturers, and he says, look, I've built a prototype in my back uh, office, he got the idea, he said, while waiting in a line at an airport on the way back from holiday and watching a cart go by with bags on it. And he thought, well, why don't we just have the wheels on the bags? Um, so he shows this prototype to Samsonite and all these other firms, and they all say, nah, it's not really worth it. Thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> and you think, how stupid of them. But then you stop and think and say, well, was it really that stupid? Because in those days, wheels would have been made of steel. They'd have been quite heavy. The, the plastic hadn't really reached the point where all this stuff would have been made of plastic. The telescopic handle hadn't been thought of much. Um, uh, it, it would have added weight and bulk to the suitcase. And actually, airports weren't that big. You didn't have to carry the bag that far. And there were a lot of porters around offering to carry it for you. Maybe... It wasn't, there wasn't much demand for wheels on suitcases. It's only when airports get much bigger uh, and uh, plastic and uh, all that, you know, makes shrinks and reduces the weight. Uh, and then the, the, there's another guy who invents the rollerboard a bit later, you know, the one that you tilt and drag behind you on a telescopic handle. And in fact, if you look back, people are trying to put wheels on suitcases in the 1920s and, and it's not catching on. So there has to be something about the market being ready for it. Um, uh, I mean, there was a there was a guy who invented a computer in the 1830s in Britain. It was called Charles Babbage, and he had the help of um, uh, 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 Lord Byron's daughter Ada Lovelace, who was really the first computer programmer. But it was going to be a, a mechanical device, you know. I mean, a great lot of sort of great big wooden switches, uh, and that was never going to work, you know. I mean, you had to get electronic before uh, you could shrink computers to the point where people would find a use for them. So uh, on the whole, it's the consumer that decides when, he, when the world is ready for uh, a new technology. Google Glass is another example of a technology that was invented, a very smart piece of tech. You know, you can sort of read your emails on the inside of your 
uh, of your spectacles. Is that how? Or, no, I can't remember. Anyway, you got a little camera and a little, you know, heads-up display on on a, on, a, on glasses. And um, uh, Google invested a lot of money in developing this, and then they put it on the market for a few thousand dollars, and it turned out no one wanted it. They eventually would drop the product. You know, it was just people didn't see the point. Yeah, well, and it was also uh, offensive to some people. Like there were there were some cultural norms that Google Glass seemed to violate. That is, uh, you constantly having a camera aimed <laughs> at uh, at people you're talking to. Yes, indeed, and uh, you know some of these cultural factors are very important. Um, uh, the 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 resistance to innovation is something I've got a whole chapter on, uh, and some of it is cultural, some of it is uh, from vested interests, uh, uh, and some of it is is just pig-headed obstinacy. So uh, I write in the book about the resistance to coffee. Um, uh, Calestus Juma wrote a book uh, uh, called Innovation and Its Enemies, and he he first alerted me to this this story, which is that when coffee first arrived in uh, the Middle East and then later in Europe uh, in the 1500s, it was banned. It was banned everywhere. It was banned in Cairo, it was banned in Constantinople, it was banned in Marseille, it was banned in Paris, it was banned in London. The bans never worked. People found ways around them and kept selling coffee because people liked coffee. Uh, but why was it banned? Well, partly because the wine and beer industries wanted it banned. They didn't like competition. Um, uh, and so they they actually sponsored um, research to show just how uh, dangerous coffee was it was going to dry out your kidneys and explode your lymph nodes and you know pseudo medical research was you know, they got doctors in universities to write this stuff up so that so that uh, so as to justify a ban on coffee but it was also because the rulers didn't like people gathering in coffee houses and having conversations because when they did that sometimes the conversation turned to whether or not the ruler was doing a good job and lo and behold, some of these conversations concluded that he wasn't doing a good job. The ruler doesn't like that. And I quote a proclamation in my book by King Charles II in England in 1672, where he's banning coffee houses, uh, and he's very explicit about it. He says basically because they're a source of fake news. Um, that he doesn't quite use the phrase. He says it's a place where people are telling lies. <laughs> but it's the same idea. So, um, and then <laughs> it. it it's just quite a nice, entertaining story. A king, as late as the 18th century, there was a campaign to ban coffee in Sweden. Again, pseudo medical reasons and other reasons, but uh, uh, and, and there was a sort of ceremonial smashing of coffee cups to try and persuade people to give up this ridiculous habit of drinking stimulating drinks. Uh, and the king of Sweden said, "I'm going to do something very." Um, scientific here. I'm going to do an experiment to find out if coffee does kill you. Uh, so he said, right, let's get two convicted murderers in prison, and we'll give one of them tea and one of them coffee every day um, from now on, and we'll see which one dies first. And I'll appoint two doctors to, to check on the experiment. Um, uh, the doctors died first. The uh, king died next. The tea drinker died next, and the coffee drinker was the last one left alive. You know, you talk about vested interests uh, preventing innovation, um, but to you know, to the extent you can find a market for a product, 
that there are not uh, legal structures that prevent you from uh, you know engaging in innovation and offering your product uh, to the public. Uh, you know, where have we seen great innovations that simply didn't take off one place, but did take off in another place based upon either vested interests or uh, government controls? Well, um, I think it's quite, I'll, I'll take a very recent example, which is vaping electronic cigarettes. Are you a vapor? I think I'm I just doing saw, it right now. Yeah, I thought you were. <laughs> um, well, this is a technology invented in China by a guy called Hon Lick. Um, and people have tried to do this before, but he was the first one who, you know, in the age of sort of miniaturized electronics, put together a practical device that worked. And he did it in order to give up smoking. He was addicted to cigarettes. He'd seen his father die of lung cancer. He wanted to stop smoking. He tried all various techniques. And he, he, he said, look, if I can get myself the nicotine, but not the smoke, then maybe I'll be better off. And this technology uh, developed uh, in China and then came west. And in the UK, it hit a lucky accident. There's a guy called Rory Sutherland, who's a um, uh, advertising executive and a bit of a um, sort of techno te technophile. And he uh, was an early adopter of this technology, got it from Hong Kong, I think. Um, and so he'd taken up vaping instead of smoking. And he was meeting an old friend who was running the behavioral insights team for David Cameron, the prime minister of Great Britain in, in number 10 Downing Street. And uh, while they were having this conversation, he pulled out his uh, electronic cigarette and took a pu puff on it. And uh, um, David Halpern, the head of the behavioral insights team, said, what the hell is that? I've never seen one of those. And Rory explained, and he said, this is a really good technology because it's going to get people off cigarettes much more effectively than existing other alternatives will. Um, uh, and it'll... Uh, almost certainly save a lot of lives because it's bound to be less dangerous than than smoking. Uh, so when, uh, so so Halpern said to Cameron, there's this new technology out there. I don't think we should ban it. The health Nazis will come along and tell us to ban it quite soon, but I don't think we should because it might save lives rather than kill them. We should probably regulate it to, for product safety and things like that. So Britain went down the route of positively encouraging this technology. We don't allow it to advertise, but we do uh, actually have an endorsement from the health authorities saying this is a good way to quit smoking, and it's 95% safer than smoking as far as we can make out. Um, encourage it, but regulate it for product safety. America went down the exact opposite route. It basically said all the, the CDC and the FDA and all these pe people all said, oh, this is a terrible new habit. This is just reviving the tobacco industry. We should, we should try and ban it. But uh, they weren't able to ban it. It still came in in various forms. But there was no product safety regulation um, because we weren't trying to, it wasn't trying to be encouraged in the US. And as a result, you got a black market developing and you got all these THC and other products uh, uh, and the, um, that uh, that oil stuff that was used, and you got a whole lot of deaths. So this is a very good example of two countries going down very different routes with respect to a new technology, and it's quite similar to the prohibition story when you think about it. Uh, you know, pretty well exactly a hundred years ago, the U.S. brought in the prohibition amendment uh, and banned uh, alcoholic beverages, um, and as a result, didn't regulate the product safety 
and quality of alcohol. And, and there was a lot of black market alcohol, a lot of very strong alcohol, you know, just like drugs. When you prohibit drugs, they get stronger because you don't want to be imported. You don't want to be trading in, in low, uh, in, you, you want to be trading in sort of high density stuff that doesn't take up too much space. Um, uh, so, um, uh, so you actually got, uh, you know, and then and then of course criminality got involved, uh, and you had all the Al Capone and all the, the violence that came out of of that. Um, uh, so that's a nice example, I think, of a technology being adopted right in one country and wrong in another. I'm not here to say that Britain does everything right and America does everything wrong. Uh, there's plenty of examples going the other way as well. So uh, what is the role then of intellectual property? You mentioned vaping and a lot of the products that were sold in the United States were sort of standard threading. They weren't proprietary in any significant way. For for innovators who've created something that is new or have dramatically improved a product, has it gotten easier or more difficult for those innovators to capture a large share of the the benefits of that innovation well my view is after looking at a lot of examples that the intellectual property system we've developed is actually a hindrance to innovation it's a deterrence um, uh, and the reason is because it's uh, effectively giving too much of a monopoly and it's putting the incentive on the uh, inventor or the innovator to defend his monopoly rather than to go ahead and in, in, invent something else in some areas, particularly software, people don't even try and patent or defend their patents much. What they do is they say, well, I better sell this fast before the next guy comes along, uh, and uh, I better improve it and improve it. And that's a better way to go. Because actually, the evidence from around the world is that countries that have strengthened their patent protection have not found that it resulted in increased innovation. And countries that have had weak patent protection have not found that they got less innovation. And if you think of the same issue in respect of copyright, the um, uh, you know Napster and other uh, streaming devices, which effectively pirated, uh, did an end run around copyright in music uh, and made it impossible to assert copyright and to make money from it, um, did that result in a collapse of music making, a collapse of innovation in songwriting? No, quite the reverse. There's a lot more of it. Sure, performers had to go out and do live gigs instead of sitting back and letting the royalties roll in from Hey Jude or whatever it was that they used to do before that. Um, but uh, on the whole, um, uh, so so I'm a real skeptic about the importance of, of patents uh, in uh, encouraging innovation. Some of the greatest innovators, the Wright brothers, Samuel Morse with the Telegraph, Marconi with radio, uh, ruined their lives by spending decades in court fighting off um, people who were challenging, challenging their patents. They'd have been better off spending more time in the lab developing a new version of the device. So uh, going forward, if you're... Uh, a great innovator, or you have the potential to be a great innovator, where on earth do you want to be? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, and at every point in history, it's been somewhere. It's, been, it's not been true that, that, that innovation has been happening everywhere. Um, so um, uh, the last 50 years, you'd have wanted to be in California. Um, uh, 100 years ago, you probably wanted to be in London. 
Um, uh, 300 years ago, you probably wanted to be in Amsterdam. 500 years ago, you probably wanted to be in in uh, northern Italy, in one of the city states there, Genoa or Florence or Venice or somewhere like that. Uh, and uh, a thousand years ago, you'd wanted to be in China, in Fujian, particularly. 1,500 years ago, maybe Arabia. So, um, five, a thousand years before that, you'd want to be in the Ganges Valley in India. You know, these are the places where the bushfire is burning strongest, where people go because they're interested in innovation, where where trade and prosperity is creating the capital that goes into innovation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it seems like there's only one place at any one time. So where is it going to be in the next 10, 20, 30 years? Well, uh, it's hard not to conclude that it's in China at the moment. That is to say, if you go and look at what's happening with consumer electronics, with uh, how, how you pay for things, how you use social media, et cetera, et cetera, the Chinese are not just catching up with the West. They're way ahead of the West on all sorts of things. They don't use cash. They don't use cards. You know, um, it's, all, uh, it's, it's all virtual. It's all in the cloud, et cetera, et cetera. That seems weird when you think about it, because I've just described how it's free city states, where, which are not part of empires, which is where it happens. You know, California is a bunch of city states in a in a federal system. Um, uh, you know, the Renaissance Italian city states were were the whole point of them was that they weren't part of um, the Ottoman Empire or the French Empire or the Spanish Empire or something like that. Uh, so. How come it is that China is able to do that? Well, partly it does have access to city-states, places like Hong Kong, um, but also it's an authoritarian and very unfree regime at the political level. But way down below that, in the weeds, if you're trying to build a building and set up a new business and start a factory and build a new widget, you're pretty free. There's not many rules and regulations that you have to worry about. There's not many bureaucrats you have to um, uh, uh, wait for their decisions on. So, curiously, China is an exception which proves the rule. But all the same, I feel uncomfortable about the idea that the world might be putting its eggs in an authoritarian basket for its innovation in the future, for reasons you and I can easily imagine. Uh, a lot of these innovations are going to be used for illiberal um, purposes. Um, and also, I don't think a regime that is as controlling and centralizing as uh, Xi's regime particularly is um, can long sustain this uh, and can can be the innovation engine for the world. So I think China will lose its crown. Where will it lose its to? I don't know, but my money would be on India. India is a big coming country. It's got a huge amount of spontaneous order uh, already. You know, it's a very bottom-up society. Uh, it's got a lot of spontaneous disorder too, and it's got a lot of you know dodgy infrastructure, which makes it very difficult to to be a great place for business. And it's also got a populist in charge these days, which isn't great, etc. But um, nonetheless, uh, it's it's an incredibly well-educated, English-speaking, very talented country, and um, I would think that uh, it will reach the front of the pack sometime in the next few decades. I, I remember years ago that India used to pitch itself uh, uh, in advertisements for India, uh, saying, we have the rule of law, we have an independent judiciary, things like that to try to pitch. And it seems like that may have well have been an appeal to, to innovators. But on, on, the, on the flip side of that, 
India has massive regulation of a very low-level activity of street vendors, of, of, of people uh, who otherwise might be innovating. I think that, that that is the big problem. If they could sort that out, if they could get the um, the the license raj, as they call it, um, uh, I remember standing in a in a in a line. This is a very long time ago, but standing in a line in Delhi to buy a license that would enable me to stand in another line to buy a train ticket, <laughs> and an Australian just turned to me and said, "Are you a Brit?" And I said, "Yes," and he said, "You guys taught them all this red tape. <laughs> it's your fault." <laughs> And he's not entirely wrong. <laughs> there are a lot of innovations that have occurred uh, throughout history that um, I suspect people didn't know they wanted until they existed. Um, and if if you listen to Don Boudreau, he will wax poetic about the shipping container. Um, and uh, more recently, I would say the iPad was a product that a lot of people th- thought initially, even after it was announced – well, who wants this? So, uh, you know, what are what are some examples that that you point to that were I didn't know it until I saw it. I didn't know I wanted it until I until I, they'd made it. I think the big one for me is the search engine. Um, the search engine is probably the most important innovation of my lifetime in terms of how much I use it. I use it every day in one form or another. You know, somewhere on some website, I'm looking for something. I'm using a search engine. Uh, in retrospect, it looks so obvious that we were going to invent search engines. As soon as we had the internet, we were going to have search engines, ways of finding stuff on the internet uh, in sophisticated ways, not sort of, you know, just find every example of, of a word or something like that. Um, and uh, and so it's, it's inevitable, it's obvious. You don't need Sergey Brin to meet Larry Page and invent Google before you've got search engines. In fact, you know, they weren't even the first to invent a search engine. And but more important, they didn't think they were inventing a search engine. And they certainly didn't think search engines were the way to make money off the internet, even though it became dramatically true that that was the way to make money. Nobody saw that coming. Very few people saw that coming. And I often say to younger people, we didn't sit around in the 1980s saying, oh, I wish we had search engines. <laughs> you know, we should have done. I mean, it's kind of obvious when you think about it. And today, I find it, you know, the, on the few occasions where you can't use a search engine, I find it so frustrating. I keep longing to reach for one. So on my, you know, behind me are some bookshelves here. You can't see them because we're on audio. But um, I've got lots of books in my bookshelves. Every now and then I search for a book and I can't find it. And my 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 instinct is to go to my computer and, <laughs> and find somewhere on my computer. There must be a way to search my own bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, maybe that's a, an innovation that I can come up with. So I think that's quite a nice example of something that that we found fantastically useful, all of us, but we didn't expect to find useful. There is a new controversy uh, regarding food delivery services, Grubhub, DoorDash. I don't know if Uber Eats is part of this uh, cabal. Uh, a lot of these places have been around for uh, considerably longer. Uber Eats was a relatively late addition to this market. But uh, some of these companies have developed uh, business models where if you go to Google, you go to a search engine and you search for a restaurant, a phone, you'll, you'll then be drawn to Grubhub and uh, a phone number will be generated for you to call to make an order to uh, uh, from one of these restaurants. That phone number was generated by Grubhub. 
and they estimate make estimates about uh, what kind of uh, conversation you're going to have with this restaurant, and they then charge the restaurant a fee. Uh, for restaurants that have found themselves in a situation where they're getting charged more than the price of the product that they are ultimately selling to consumers. Now, in a technical sense, that sounds like an innovation to me, uh, but it doesn't sound like one that is particularly useful, uh, broadly speaking. It certainly is not. I mean, you know, uh, that, uh, and, and my gut tells me that's going to go extinct as a practice because the restaurants are going to find a way to stop being gamed and, uh, and sunk in this way. Um, uh, and, uh, it, but I'm, if, if, if I was asked this question by somebody who read an early version of the book, he said, why don't you have a, a chapter on bad innovations, on things that we wish we'd never invented. Um, and I said, well, what do you mean, nuclear weapons? He said, yeah. And I said, but, you know, are we sure we wish that? I mean, wouldn't we have had a hot war instead of a cold war if we hadn't invented them, et cetera? You know, so you can have that argument. Um, uh, what about computer viruses? Yeah, but kind of the whole point of that is that uh, we is that they don't take over the world. Um, uh, they are they are bad guys doing bad things, for sure. Um, but uh, the warning, I mean, I remember warnings from about 20 years ago that computer viruses were going to get so much worse that we were all going to have to stop using the internet. Well, it didn't turn out like that because on the whole, the good guys can innovate faster than the bad guys because they can share their ideas in the open and the bad guys can't, uh, you know, and things like that. Um, so I don't think there are that many examples of bad innovations that last. There are some, uh, but they don't. Uh, the, the, it, it's not a it's not a problem that we invent things and then wish we had on the whole. In in the case of uh, specifically with respect to uh, these food delivery services that are exacting these high prices or heavy charges from uh, the restaurants that they're supposed to be serving. Um, it seems to me that as long as people are able to create new products to compete with those, there's, there, you know, in, in light of the news of the last couple of weeks about this particular problem, uh, it seems like a, a fairly easy fix. I would agree. And that's, that's where competition is so important. I mean, um, again, just going back to the patents story um when the 3d printing patents expired about four years ago there's some key patents on 3d printing expired the price of, of a particular uh, uh sort of type of process on 3d printing came down from ten thousand dollars to one thousand dollars i mean that sort of collapse of price what does that tell you it tells you that uh that competition is what you need. Uh, patents are getting in the way of competition. So uh, it's absolutely crucial to let competition flourish to find new ways of doing things. That's what it's good at. Matt Ridley is author of How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. We spoke this week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 